0: All right, let's go.
1: Let's go. Welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Harmon. We're thrilled to be joined by an actor with many film and TV and stage credits to his name. He's also a member of the Planetary Society. He's one of my favorite actors. Robert Picardo, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank
0: you both. Thank you for having me. Now, there's an expression you've already uttered that I don't fully understand. What is the expression one of your favorite (laughs) actors mean i i'm i'm here all the time you are my favorite actor but one of suggests that i'm just a slice off an endless loaf (laughs) that you have hundreds of thousands of favorite actors and i'm well no it's okay i'll settle for one of anyway thanks for having uh, me
1: i introduced john delancey that way as well i said he was one of my favorite actors it's just polite yes
0: well he is one of my yeah he's one of my it is polite even if it's a big fat lie it's polite (laughs) and you guys you australians are nothing if not polite i have found
1: oh thank Mm. you very much um i'd like to start off with um something fun so when we have people here in the studio with us we have a camera set up and we've started recently going through the hours and hours of the recordings that we've done and more often than not my head is faced away from the camera and I have just been assaulted. We've seen my ever-growing bald spot over the last eight months. So people may ask you if you have any acting advice, but I wanna ask you, do you have any advice for people who have started losing their hair?
0: Yes, (laughs) here it is. (laughs) Wear a hat. Wear a hat. If you notice, my bald spot is nowhere in evidence. I can't even I can't even remember the last time when I could say without eliciting a laugh. Can you see my bald spot in this shot? My bald spot is not only viewable on Google Earth; it is uh, you could you could put a commercial endorsement there. I could put the name of your podcast uh, that you could see from space. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, bald men tend to like hats. I don't normally wear one inside for an interview. It was a last minute. Decision, but I'm happy I did because it basically sums up my advice. There are things that are supposed to, you know, to stimulate hair growth. We all heard of the great promise of. Uh, it was called Rogaine, the trade name here. Probably had a different name in Australia. The the market the minoxidil. I believe it was. Uh, it was um, some sort of a. What was what was minoxidil? originally designed for it, it it was some sort of a drug that had another purpose and then they discovered that off-brand used for another reason it helped uh it helped grow hair in fact uh there there's actually a, a joke that i'm trying to dig out of my mind it's 15 or so if minoxidil grows your hair and do, do we use the word viagra in australia is that a oh, trade yeah. name
1: yeah yeah
0: okay okay so did you hear about the guy who who um uh uh, took um, uh, minoxidil and Viagra at the same time. He grew hair, but he couldn't couldn't keep it down. That was a that was a that was hilarious. Twenty five years ago. Yeah. Um. So, um. I don't know if any of the products work. Um. I often thought there was a there. Uh, you may or may not know that in a. Uh, let's for the sake of your audience, because mm-hmm. the actors are on strike, might as well get it out of the way. We're not supposed to specifically discuss any of our film or television. uh, projects that we've done in the past or present uh, against entities that we are struck against studios and production companies so we can't talk about you know the 800 or 900 pound gorilla my gorilla's been on a diet the 800 pound gorilla in the room of course is my science fiction connections but i do recall this when i was cast to be the very face and image of everything humanity knows about medicine in the 24th century one of my first questions was, "Whatever happened to Rogaine?" <laughs> apparently, you know. Apparently, it it didn't work out. Nor did subsequent uh, products to help with your problem. So, uh, yes, uh, I can see your bald spot from here. I can happily say that it's good that you don't have a mirrored yes. wall <laughs> behind you. But I do. I highly recommend hats. There is a great variety from which to choose.
1: When when I've worn hats, this guy just makes fun of me.
0: No, but I think I think. Well, boss, that's yeah. That's what looks- as, looks pretty good on him a golf hat which is basically a baseball cap a golf hat is still sort of a, a, a like a, a or is a golf hat more of a short brim cap
1: oh it's like an old timey um old school hat yeah
0: yeah oh i see uh, you mean an old time uh, like a cap that is too big on the sides like a, ni- a yes. early yes. 20th That's century great. golf yeah. cap yeah yes I have those. Those are, you can actually hide things in them. You could probably put your wallet in there, or yeah. Yeah. your room card at a hotel, or you know, or depending on, you know, I I would guess a couple of bags of salted peanuts. So you can hide a lot in a golf hat. Or or hair growing couple. <laughs> <laughs> we we actually uh, <laughs> hair
1: transplant hair transplants seem to uh, do the job because we had a um, comedian in here not that long ago who just had a hair transplant major surgery apparently yeah. and his hair has actually started to um grow in
0: they do you know they used to look like you were seeding a lawn they used to, you used to be able to see the little clumps but they have gotten much more sophisticated in the interview. i mean hair transplants have been around gosh since uh i think the late 60s and early 70s and i understand they've improved a great deal um i had uh a close relative who had some of the early ones. And I remember his head looked a little like a cheese grater, you know. So uh, but but now I think they're very successful. What you need is a good, healthy donor region. And you're sitting right next to Harmon, who looks like a great donor region to me. If they can't find one on your own head.
1: Harmon's hair doesn't move. Oh yeah,
0: it does. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's very impressive. It's it's uh, you have a very yes. If I had your hair, Harmon, I would have had a different life and career. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, I would have. You know, I don't know if it would have been better or worse. Probably better. I, I we could ask. You know, um, if you come to the convention, my wife is coming with me to the uh, convention in Australia. She may ask to run her hands through your hair just for a vicarious kick, because it's been a long time, you know. So we'll see. I've been asked. All right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever worn uh, toupees to auditions?
0: Um, I did. You know, I've I've done a number of roles on uh, television and occasionally on stage. And in movies uh, with hair pieces, Uh, I've done a number, uh, I'm allowed to, without referring to projects, I've done a number of movies for a dear friend, Joe Dante, and a number of them, I had uh, full wigs, sometimes a little hair piece for comedy purposes. Um, And there's there's an awkward part in your career where you do audition in a hair piece. Uh, I did a major television series about a, a, a drama about Vietnam. I'm not going to mention any titles to obey our strictures. And, uh, and that one, uh, I wore a hairpiece in because at that time in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, in American television, if you were going to play a romantic lead and get to kiss the beautiful leading girl, you had to have hair. And, uh, I'm happy my, uh, my, uh, my friend uh, and colleague within the franchise, uh, Patrick Stewart, helped change all that, that you can, uh, that you can now um, be a bald man and be considered uh, attractive. I mean, Europe was always way ahead of us. I mean, there were, there were you know young, balding actors in French movies who were leading men in their late 20s and early 30s. So I think Europe has always had a much healthier viewpoint on that. Um, but yes, there, in answer to your question, there was a period in my career when I often auditioned in a hairpiece, never liked doing it, um, you know, because you don't feel, you know, you, you you don't feel your essential self. But if you if you just deal with it like a character choice, like anything else, like whether the character has an accent or um, any other part of his backstory, it's a really minor thing. And so many great actors throughout their careers. One of my favorite actors, Robert Duvall, was in and out of hair pieces all the time in different roles. And, you know, it's just when you're, when you're first going bald as a, as a young actor, it's, it's, it's the first sign of a permanent change to your appearance that we associate with aging. Yeah. Even though a lot of men start going bald in their late teens and early twenties, but you still, you still in, you still look at it as the sort of first irreversible change in your appearance. And, uh, and for an actor, any irreversible change in your appearance will limit your roles, but there are plenty of good hair pieces. Uh, Another very close friend of mine throughout my career, the actor Joe Pantoliano has done all different kinds of roles with and without hair pieces, sometimes full wigs and and deals with it in a very, very healthy way. I just saw Joe star in his first stage uh, musical and heard him sing on stage. And he plays two different characters, two leads in the show. One of them is bald with hair sticking out on the side. And the other one is a very suave gangster with a full head of hair. <laughs> so he, you know, he's uh, always inspired me. Um, as a close friend, to 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 just make the way the character looks regarding, you know, his hair, just another choice that you make in how he dresses and how he speaks and all of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's. Um, I can't believe we've just spent uh, the first ten minutes talking about baldness, but there you go.
0: <laughs> well, you know, we can talk. We can talk about you know uh, anything that begins with the word star and ends in another word um so you know so we've got to fill up the time in an interesting way for your listeners um uh, uh, about other aspects of my career without talking specifically about the film and television roles
1: to tell you the truth i like Mm -hmm. these confines that we have to work in now because our podcast is all about gaining some perspective and insight and some advice on life so this is what our show is all about it's about people's lives how they've lived what they've achieved, um, what are their setbacks, etc.? So this is, this is excellent. Mm. And I think- oh, good.
0: Well, so far the, the only concrete, you know, advice <laughs> you've gotten so far is wear a hat. Yeah, exactly, 10 minutes. Yeah, so, good advice. I've so we gotta run, move, we yeah. gotta get a little, we we'll gotta get deeper hats. than that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm gonna test out some um, new questions that I haven't asked any guests because we've done over 50 episodes now. So it's now to, now time to branch out into some deeper questions what is your mm. earliest memory in life
0: wow hmm well um i mean there there might be little flashes of other things i remember my, my father taking me and my um, three older siblings uh, to go feed the ducks. And I was the youngest one, and we would have some a bag of stale bread that we would feed the ducks. And I, I remember uh, I was busted for eating the stale bread. I, I must have been about two and a half or something like that. Now, I've heard of other people who remember back to being infants. I don't know that I do. And also, when you have home movies, my dad had a sixteen millimeter camera, and there is a home movie of me uh stealing the eating the bread out of the bag when I'm at two and a half, so it's very hard to tell whether they're actual memories hmm. or whether you just saw them years later uh a couple of times in a home movie um one of my most vivid ones was the first time um I got on an airplane with my family and my my uh My aunt Rita and her husband, Uncle Joe, had, I guess, driven all of us or uh, driven us all to the airport. How we all got in one car, I don't know, because we were a family, counting my mom and dad, a family of six. And I don't, maybe they just drove there. uh, I don't, I don't remember the details. They accompanied us to the airport somehow and to see us off. And uh, those were the days where there were no, Uh, What do you call them? Jetways to get on uh, a jet. You had to walk uh, out uh, an exterior staircase from the airport terminal, walk across the tarmac and then walk up the steps the way you still do on on smaller flights. Now, Um, in any case, my uh, my father and my two sisters and my brother and my mother all got on the plane and uh, my father said, where's Bobby? That was what they called me. And my mother said, I thought he was with you. And they looked back and in the window waving goodbye were my aunt and uncle who were way and next to them coming up to maybe their knee, knees or slightly above their knees they didn't even notice me waving goodbye <laughs> my family I had got I had I had not gotten on the plane no one had noticed including the people that were seeing us off didn't notice I was standing next to them so my father had to as they were about to close the door had to make a big scene and stop them and run and I remember my father you said what was my first memory i remember him at the base of the staircase the, the door that led onto the tarmac i remember him waving to me like come on come on, come on. and i'm like this <laughs> you know so he had to run up the stairs grab me by the arm and kind of carry me onto the plane uh and and i i think i had to have been about two and a half or three um so that, that i would say that is a that is about as early as i can go do,
1: do you feel you remember more from your childhood as you've gotten older?
0: You know, that's another good question. I don't know that I remember more. You There's a period of life when you get older, I think you start to think about things more. You think about um, moments in your life that you never realized at the time were uh, foundational or very influential uh, where decisions were made that set you off on a path and you never quite saw it that way because you're too busy as a young as a young person looking ahead to the next experience and making decisions as you go along but if you step back and you think of just pure little by chance happenings getting into this college versus the one you really thought you wanted to go to, um, and having to make do with your second choice. But how that turned out for you? Um, doing a in my case, doing a play in college because I went to college with the ambition of being a medical doctor, not a television doctor. And I was a biology major. As soon as I could announce, I was pre med. I was an announced biology major sophomore year, but I had acted a lot in high school for fun and because I wasn't a good athlete. And I went to a male prep school, and the best way to meet girls from the other schools was either to be in the sporting events or be in the school play because the girls were, you know, bussed in to be in our plays with us. And I had gotten quite successful from my first play in ninth grade when I was sort of pushed on stage by a classmate who just wanted me to be in the play with him. And then by senior year, I had... Quite a number of different theater experiences, including a very dramatic one under my belt, because I had one of those great mentoring teachers who recognized in me a certain talent, and he kept pushing me to, to find out whether I was really interested in it. You know, I loved being in comedies and making people laugh, and then senior year, instead of putting me in a comedy, he put me in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which is about as unfunny a drama as you can get. Went off to college, continued to still act in plays as I was trying to major in biology, which was very difficult because, you know, we had afternoon labs in biology that didn't get out till often, I think, 4.30, 5 o'clock. And you've been in class since 8 a.m. You rushed to get something to eat. You had to be at rehearsal by 7 o'clock to like 9 or 9.30. And then you started your homework at 9.30 or 10, knowing you had to get up at 6.45. So it was challenging. But I was in a play that just turned my life around uh, in my late sophomore year. Um, I had been seen in one comedy by a young uh, graduate of the L School of Music, who went on to become a very successful conductor. And uh, the play was Leonard Bernstein's Mass, which is a monumental piece of music that has actors, a full adult chorus, a children's chorus, a rock and roll band, a full mixed choir of voices, dancers, and a symphony orchestra. It's almost unproducible because it's too expensive. And Bernstein had written it on special commission for the opening of the Kennedy Center in Washington in 1970 or 71. John Mosseri, who was the young student at the Yale Graduate School of Music, had assisted Bernstein in a production of uh, Carmen, I think, conducting his orchestra. and, And he saw the production of The Mass. And he said, Mr. Bernstein, I think they screwed up your piece. I'd like to try to do it at Yale as sort of a poor theater production using students. Bernstein said, Go ahead, be my guest. Don't have to pay any royalties. We did it at Yale. And it became quite a sensation and Bernstein came to see it. And he is the one who said to me, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm studying to be a doctor. And he said, I'm surprised to hear that you have, because I had a very big role. I mean, a flashy role in the show. I had the Broadway number called God Said. Went on about five five and a half minutes and I was dancing all over the place like a madman. I had a giant afro. It's the only sexy part I've ever had. It was all over for me, sex appeal wise at 17 or 18, whenever I was 19. Anyway, um, he saw me in it and said you have such natural energy on stage. I think you'd want to be an actor. And I said, would you say that to my mother? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because my mother was putting four kids to school because my dad had died, surprisingly. And, you know, without warning, my dad had died of a heart attack in his early 50s. So. My mother took over a family business, a furniture business. She didn't know how to run, but she had to do it. And she took over, learned the business, put the four of us through college, and I did not want to disappoint her. So I uh, on opening night of the mass, Leonard Bernstein told my mother he shot he thought I had it uh, I should be an actor, and that was it. Got me right out of pre-med. It was just a random thing. I would never have been in that show had I not been in the silly musical comedy on a very small scale at Yale that uh, that this young music student, John Mosseri, had seen me in and said, you have to be in this show. So it was just a little coincidence here and a coincidence there. And it sends you on a trajectory in life that uh, looking back, I mean, I'm happy it happened, but it could so easily not have happened. And I would have been a, a, an actual doctor, probably, rather than a television doctor, which means uh, all sorts of things it means i'd have steadier employment perhaps um uh, but i i'd have to carry malpractice insurance very expensive i think some actors should have to carry malpractice insurance i've seen some pretty (laughs) crappy performances i'm sure you guys have too in any case it's just it was a it was a little tiny life event that just determines the arc of the rest of your life at least professionally yeah and uh and I, I think more about little things like that. And I think that's a natural, uh, you know, everybody, they start to, re- as you get older, you reflect on your life to try to make some sense out of it or kind of, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who wants to sit down and write a book about yeah. my life, even though some of my friends uh, tell me I should. But I, but it makes you think about the story. How do you, you know, what is the story? How do you tell the story? And most importantly, what are those pivotal Moments of chance that you know, where you really, um, we really set out on a different course than you thought you wanted to pursue. Mm.
1: You you mentioned there that your um, mother went into a business she knew nothing about, trying to raise a family on her own because your dad had died at a fairly young age. What sort of support in the community did your family have um, during that time?
0: That's a great question. My dad was very community minded. He was president of uh, different things, different civic organizations like the Lions Club, which is a service organization. My dad sponsored a yearly dinner to benefit all of uh, people. They used to be called blind. Now they're called visually impaired. But he had an annual banquet to raise money for the blind people in Philadelphia. He did all sorts of you know, cool civic minded things. And I think even though I was very young, I was only nine years old, but I think that because my dad had been very community minded that a number of people knew him, liked him, respected him. So I think that there was a certain amount of, I, I mean, at least um, uh you know, condolences and, you know, just spoken yeah. support. We also had a fairly large family, especially on my father's side. So there was a lot of Uh, support there. Um, You know, I remember a a, a cousin, not an aunt and uncle, cousins of my mother. They had a son about my age. So, you know, they would take me to the seashore every summer for a week because they knew my mom had her hands full having to work all summer. And I was the youngest kid. So there were certain things. uh, Some of my friends, families from school would take me, uh, you know, for a week during the summer. because, and, and in retrospect, of course, that was a way of expressing, uh, you know, helping out. My mother, who had to work all day when the kids were out of school, and I, being the youngest one, I couldn't kind of go off on my own. So I would say that there was a lot of informal support. There certainly wasn't any, you know, official support uh, back then, I think, from, uh, that I'm aware of from agencies of any kind, government or, or NGOs, not not back at, at, at that time in history. Um, but, you know, as I said, good family support. And also my, my family, my siblings, my sister a year and a half older than me made my lunch for school every day. She suddenly took over as, you know, assistant mom. My brother, who was five years older than me, started working more and more at the furniture store and became a really good young salesman at age 14, 15, 16 years old. I was uh, when I went to help work at the store, I would assemble things like the kitchenette sets and all that badly. I'm sure not very well, but uh, well, we all try to help out and pitch in. My oldest sister, I think, was already in college. Let me think. Yeah, she would have been in college, so she would not have had as much time uh, anyway. So, yeah, there was support from my mom from certainly from the kids too, as much as, you know. I remember my sister was very heroic in in her, you know taking care of me from the moment I got home from school till my mom got home from work. You you said your um
1: dad died suddenly um, in his 50s. Did that, when you surpassed that, or when you were approaching your dad's age, did you think about that
0: more and more? Oh, absolutely, yeah. As my brother did too. My brother, who's five years older than me, yeah, sure. You look at that because, you know, there's family history there and you have to adjust. You know, um, my dad worked really hard and his main passion in, in, the, in the one day off the week he had was to play golf, which is a lot of working. But still, he did not have. A, I, I try to exercise regularly, but my life is not as hard, I think, as my father's life. I mean, when I work when we work in film and television, we may have very long hours And it might be, you know, uh, if if you're featured in an episode, you might work 70 hours that week or even a little more, but that's unusual. And then, you know, um, and if in a network television series, you may work nine months out of the year, but you still have three months off now in newer type shows that they make for streaming platforms, none of which I can mention now. Um, you know, they tend to make fewer episodes, 10, and you, I think actors tend to work, you know, full time six months of the year, unless they're on broadcast TV where they make more episodes. So still, I don't, you know, my dad worked, you know, 50, 50 weeks a year, six days a week from about getting up probably at seven in the morning and going to bed at night after dinner at nine or 10, ten at night. So his life was pretty much all work. So, you know, I think that uh I try to exercise and eat right and you know, and and yes, but it's definitely something you see on the horizon as you approach that age. And then you're mindful of all you're grateful really for all of the years that you have after that and try to take the best care of yourself you can.
1: Mm. Did when did you um start
0: building a family? Um early 30s a lot of actors tend to it's funny this the generation of actors that i'm in i find tend to have delayed having children both male and female uh, as long as they could or you know um for example many of my italian cousins got married in their early 20s married as young as some of the girls got married at 21 22 the guys at 23, 24. So they had children. They already had children in their late twenties and early, you know, um, or even mid twenties. My cousin who's closest to me in age has, gosh, I'm going to get this wrong. I I think he, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember whether he has three or four children, but he has like six grandchildren. I don't, you know, I have two daughters. um, And, uh, one of them is—I'm well, actually—one of them is pretty serious and probably going to get married sometime soon. But you know, if I squeeze one grandkid or two out of this arrangement, you know, between now and the wrong side of the grass, uh, that'll be a miracle. Um, so, uh, so uh, we tend to delay it. The generation of actors before me, actors who grew up in the—you know—in the like the the who were who were children. I think in the fifties in the uh, you know, or let's say born in the late forties and very young in the early fifties, even just actors 10 years older than you. So I, um, uh, that I admire a lot, Eli Wallach and people like that had kids, you know, they had kids in their twenties and you just may do, but now I think it's become more and more expensive, you know, sadly, you know, with the advent of big box stores like Costco, you know, children have become like a. You know, uh, are are the the number one consumer item is to have a child because suddenly it opens up those extra five aisles at Costco you were ignoring, mm. you know, with everything from from uh, uh you know, uh, kitty clothes, baby formula, diapers galore, everything. You know, and suddenly you're you you become a, you, your consumption goes up and other. 30 percent as it you know or 40 percent as a family the moment you have your first child
1: that's that's why i still want to kind of wait a little
0: bit i want mm-hmm. to do more traveling <laughs> before
1: i start having mm-hmm.
0: kids right and yeah. wear a hat while you're doing it that's yeah, it so yeah. you'll just remain absolutely as dev- devilishly attractive to the opposite uh, sex or or whoever you want to be attractive to just wear a hat it's <laughs> going to work i i promise
1: I'm definitely going to start wearing more hats for sure.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm kidding you. I'm teasing <laughs> you. Okay.
1: Um, so when you became a working actor with a family at home, was that difficult to um, be in be in their lives at, a, at an early stage in their lives? Um,
0: a lot of actors, especially if you're a feature film actor, you travel. Um, uh, all over the place, the, the movies, movies are shot anywhere in the world, so they went away for months at a time. That is so rare. I was lucky to get uh, most of my big jobs were in television and if the show ran anywhere from four years to seven years or whatever, I was working in town. So yes, I may have been out of the house all day long for five days in a row where I barely saw the children just go in and uh, kiss them if they were already asleep or try to wake up if I'd been up till if I didn't get to bed till 2 or two thirty, try to get up to drive them to school or because um, you know you have to have help and all that and uh, you know and you have a, you have a spouse and you have a, a helper um, but uh, but there were times when they didn't seem it felt like I wasn't around them for a whole week but that was relatively rare and the great news is i didn't have to travel out of town the way so many other actors do so i was fortunate but nice. yeah that's quite true and theater actors uh if you're in a broadway show you're out of the house every night of the week except for one night you know you got you leave the house mm. uh depending on what you're doing whether it's a straight play or a musical and the curtain's seven or eight o'clock or whatever but basically you're marshalling all of your energy during the course of the day to be ready for that performance. And, uh, and if you're in a show, if if theater is your life and you're in a, you're in the lion King for six years straight or whatever, yeah, you get your two weeks vacation and all that when your standby goes on, but you're, you know, six nights a week, you're leaving the house at exactly the same time coming home late. It It is a, you know, it's a, It it isn't very conducive to um, to regular family life to be in the entertainment industry. I was thinking
1: about this the other day, where um, the usual nights people would go out on Fridays and Saturdays. Well, if you're in a musical or play, you can't, you don't have that Friday and Saturday night. You can never (laughs) go out and socialize. So how do you
0: maintain life? Yeah, you are, you are, you have, you have to accept that you are, especially on a theater schedule, you are. Other people's entertainment, yeah. so if other people go out to look for entertainment Friday and Saturday night, that's you. You're not out. you're not able to go out and look for entertainment because <laughs> you're entertaining. yeah um certainly in the theater. Uh, with the other great irony in our business is that you you might you might start as a theater actor as I did, come to uh, Hollywood as I did with a Broadway show. Well, in the Broadway theater, once you've rehearsed during the day and all that, and the show is up and running. You know, you may have an under, you may have a, a brush-up rehearsal once a week, but basically, you're only going in to work at night or on a matinee day. You go in for the matinee and then have a bite to eat, take a nap at the theater, and go on and do the the evening show. But but you're a night person if you're in the theater, and then suddenly you go to work in film and television and overnight you have to become a day person because we all know that, you know, the morning call on most television shows, depending on what your makeup is, but it's five thirty in the morning. You have a 5.00 AM, 5.30, 6.00 AM call, a time of day. You may never see ever if you're a theater actor, unless you stay up all night after your performance. Um, so, uh, so yeah, they're definitely different disciplines. And the other really interesting thing for young actors is that acting on film and television versus acting in the theater are parallel art forms. They really are. It demands different things of you. Um, You know, you can you can really be kind of awkward in your body and be a successful television actor because so much of television is in close up. You know what I mean? You don't have to really move well or use your whole body well i know actors that you know have very successful television careers who you put them on stage and they're kind of stiff and not very interesting you know and you know you have to you you have to use your voice a lot more on stage even though almost everything is miked now on stage you really you really your, your vocal power is still going to be much more important in the theater than it is in movies and television. Uh, one of my my acting teacher, who really was a theater guy, didn't know a lot about film and television, but he did say, I remember he said that, that he thought emotion was the most important tool. Well, tool is the wrong word, but the emotion for an actor was more important on stage and thought was more important in film. Now it's a very arbitrary and simple, um division uh, but there's a certain amount of truth to that because in a close-up you can see the tiniest flicker of thought or series of thoughts happening in an actor's mind and even if you're not sure exactly what the character is thinking you're engaged and you're interested and you're drawn in you would never see all of that in a theater performance, even if you were in the front row, because it's so subtle, you know? Yeah. So so all of those cliches where you need to use your whole body on stage, you need more vocal power and, range, and to use your range, even if it's not a musical, use your voice, m- much more differently and, and variedly, if that's a word. Um, on stage, uh, all of those basic distinctions are true. And and I know that some actors take film acting courses, which I never did. I just sort of had to learn on the job. I do remember one of my first film jobs, the uh, sound guy came up to me and he said, you know, you don't have to talk so loud. The mic is right here. Because <laughs> you you know, I was used to playing to the balcony. <laughs> Um, Robert as you were progressing through your career from theater to to getting into the industry you know as Nietzsche said every man is an actor of his own ideal. Did you ever felt imposter syndrome? Um, Yes of course as a young actor to have you know I I was very lucky when I first came to New York I got in a show that Started in regional theater on Long Island, moved off Broadway, and then moved to Broadway. So it took me to Broadway. June 1st of 1977, I was 23 years old, and I made my Broadway debut in the lead role. How would I have ever? I would never have gotten that. From a regular audition the thing about you don't get to play a lead in a broadway play unless you've already played a lead in a broadway play it's like that's the catch-22 they don't want to get the the people the money people are not going to put an unknown in a lead because they're afraid but but as the roles get younger and younger as the character gets younger and younger you have a better shot because you know if the lead character is some some Broadway shows, some recent ones I've seen, the lead character is supposed to be 15 years old. Well, how much experience can an actor who can still play convincingly, 15, how much lead role experience could he have had on stage? Um, And I was not a child actor. I mean, I did not become a professional until I turned 21. That was my first off-Broadway show, a play with Diane Keaton. But at 23, I had my first lead on Broadway, and it was just it was really luck because they had workshopped the play in New York. Um, I remember Sigourney Weaver was in the workshop production. She left to do another play, which she thought had a brighter future turned out, um, that she left the play that and, and moved to Broadway. Her show never did, but she's had a, a fine career. She did not need, she did not need any help. Um, and then, uh, The actor who played my character's father was too young in the workshop production, so they replaced him with Danny Aiello. And then the actor who played the lead role, who was a wonderful actor, um, who you've seen in in, uh, many movies, um, uh, they replaced me with him because they didn't think he was funny enough in a play where his character had a problem that really wasn't very funny, but you still had to keep the audience rooting for you. You couldn't block them out. You couldn't be too angry. It was a gr- coming of age part. And the lead character, you had to root for him to be happier and to accept his poor background that he came from and that, you know, accept himself in life and join in rather than, because it was a crazy comedy, but my character was the one who had the problem uh, about accepting himself. Long story short, Um, The show ran for four years on Broadway. I left it after the first year to do another lead on Broadway because I'd played a lead. I got to be, I got my next job. But that was just, it was just luck that I got in a show that kept succeeding and moving up the ladder till it got to the most prestigious place for commercial theater anyway in, in, in the United States is Broadway. So that was, that was a lucky, that was very lucky. And then I look back and say, well, gee, once I got out of biology at Yale and decided to become an actor, I graduated my third year at the end of my third year. If I hadn't done that, if I'd stuck around a fourth year just to enjoy senior year and all that, I never would have done that Broadway show, never would have had that career changing moment because I would have missed it by a year. I would have missed the opportunity. So that's what I mean about later in life thinking about, Mm. well, you know, I'm going to graduate early. I found out I can. What a surprise. Now that I know I'm going to do it, you know, but if if I didn't have a friend who said to me then, hey, can you graduate early? You have some AP credit. I said, I don't know. I'll take a look. If, if somebody hadn't even put it in my mind, who knows if I would have done it? You know, that's what I mean about little tiny moments hmm. that the later steps, later steps in your progress would never have happened. The, the confluence of events would not have occurred. Something else as good. Possibly something possibly better. Yeah. But to play a lead on Broadway at 23 is a pretty lucky confluence of events. But the point is, your question was imposter syndrome. Did I feel like an imposter? Absolutely. I thought this is a really lucky thing I've been given. So all I can do rather than doubt myself, all I can do is work as hard as I can and do the best I can with this role. And I got better and better in a role that was quite difficult in a comedy. I remember the first review I got published for this part when we were at, uh, at the Performing Arts Foundation of Long Island, now no longer around. The review said the lead role of Francis is played by a totally charmless actor named Robert Picardo. So that was my first major review, totally charmless. Well, right. at least it's at least you, you go all the way. You're not just relatively charmless (laughs) or moderately charming. I was completely without charm. So I had to figure a way to make the character still stay truthful to the character's dilemma and his story arc, but still allow the audience in to care about him. And that became what I, I think I was most... Suc- if I had to look back and say the kind of character I've played that I've been most successful at is the guy that you initially don't like mm. for whatever reason. And then you grow to... Li- In spite of the initial bad impression, whether he appears to be arrogant or pretentious or stuffy or nasty or whatever, that you grow you stay interested enough in him to look behind the mask. Why does he act that way? And more often than not, it's some sort of a neurotic driver to the character, an insecurity, a paranoia, whatever. And this applies to different roles I played in comedy or in science fiction, where that was part of the game that what made the character interesting was his his initial bad impression. And then you, and then, but you, you can't turn the audience off and go, Ooh, I don't like him. I don't want to watch him anymore. It has to be, Ooh, why does he act that way? I wonder why. Oh, I see. And then you start to discover his insecurities or, or how he feels he's not being treated fairly or accorded the respect he deserves, whatever. And, uh, and I think that, um, I think that, in retrospect, again, you know, examining my own professional experience, there was a lesson to learn in that first Broadway lead where I was hired because the other guy was too angry and not likable in the part. So my job was to still maintain the integrity of the character and be more likable. That's really what it was in a character that was very, it was hard to do that because he couldn't accept himself. But you have to root for the audience Want you to accept yourself, and, and that's in a tortured juvenile part. But even as adults, in my science fiction role, you have you have to make the audience root for you to feel more accepted by your colleagues, who may or may not be artificial intelligences. Mm-hmm. If I can make a vague allusion <laughs> to a uh, to a show for a studio against which we are on strike. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh- as you've been talking, I've just been um, noticing that ring that you wear. Um, does that mm. hold um, sentimental value
0: to you? Uh, this was my father's ring. Now, to be truth be told, my father's got, um, which I had for many, many years, uh, it, it has an intaglio on it, which is the head of a soldier, like a, uh, I think, I don't know if it's a Spanish conquistador or a Roman soldier. I don't know enough, but it's called an intaglio. Uh, and and uh, this is a remake of my father's ring. The stone is almost identical. Mm-hmm. But my wife, very thoughtfully, uh, from photographs of my father's ring, which after years and years of having it heartbreakingly, I, I lost it. It had fallen apart a couple times and I would rescued it and fixed it and then finally i after having it more than a quarter uh, uh, probably 35 years i lost it so my wife got pictures of it analyzed them and had it remade for me so it is a remake of a family heirloom but it's still i still wear it every day
1: i i love that that's a beautiful gift
0: <laughs> that is beautiful mm-hmm.
1: it, you um you come from an italian background is that right
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. All four of my grandparents were born in Italy and emigrated to uh, the states in the uh, in the first decade or early in the second decade of the of the twentieth century.
1: So, what's your connection with the country? Um, do you travel there often?
0: Yes. I try to go every year. I've probably been, to Italy. I've lost count how many times I've been there, but I have to think I've been there at least 20 times okay. and I'm going again in about, uh, in about two weeks. Wow. I try to go to different places. I have family in different cities. Uh, so I sometimes visit family members. I just, uh, love to go, love the people, love the food. Um, You know, so yes, I feel quite connected there. I have an elderly cousin that I visit in Rome. Oh, she's in her nineties now. And, uh, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to go. And I have a lot of, you know, a lot of family members there for, um, cousins that are, uh, their first cousins removed by two generations. In other words, you share, uh, um, your grandparents, say, were brother and sister, that kind of thing. So what, um, what his, is your, the, grandparent, uh, your grandparent, your uh, grandparent, my grandfather may have been uh, my cousin's uh, uh, married to my cousin's grandmother, that kind of thing. So we, I believe that makes you first cousins a couple generations removed.
1: What is the Italian culture? Well.
0: I missed the last word. Oh, what is the Italian what?
1: What is the Italian culture like?
0: Wow, Well, that's kind of hard to explain. Um uh they uh, they uh really seem to enjoy life. They uh they have Obviously, wonderful food, wonderful ingredients, tremendous pride in local dishes, different parts. I'm going to a new part of Italy I've never been to, way down in the toe, lower. Th- I've been to Sicily, but it's a, as far as... It's the farthest south I will have been in the peninsula. Um, it's hard to explain. I just think they have... a tr- Italians have a tremendous sense of style. Uh, they're, they uh, really um, are... Uh, I, they're great appreciators of food, and almost it seems like almost everyone in Italy knows how to cook, male and female. I don't know if that's an illusion, um, but I just um, I don't know. I, I can't. I, I it, it also varies tremendously in different places of Italy, obviously. It's very different in northern Italy. Um, the way people, you know, people on the street, the way they appear, uh, many of them are more fair-skinned and blonde because they're closer to, um, you know, uh, Switzerland, somewhere there are where th- there are three different languages spoken in Switzerland, depending on what part you're in, you know, German, French, and Italian. Um, but most of, you know, um, my father's side is from southern Italy near Salerno, and my mother's side is... Uh, uh, a province that's uh, a little more in the middle, but still considered, you know, yeah. I, I would say still considered southern Italy uh, from the uh, Abruzzo, which is a region. That, you know, none of us are are northern Italians. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so, but so the culture, I, I can't say that you can't. I, I would just, uh, you know, so it changes. Yeah. Um, uh, depending on what part of Italy you're in, um, Rome is certainly. Um, you know, one of the great, great cities. Some people feel it's the greatest city in the world. I guess it depends. You know, other people feel it's like I do that it's uh, it's one of the uh, very few great cities in the world. Mm. Um, um, that I always enjoy going to. But I can't sum. I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not. Uh, what's the word? I'm, I just can't sum it up for yeah. you. <laughs>
1: I, I do think of food when I think of Italy.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah. think yeah. I think a lot of people do yeah a lot of people do
1: yeah um we'll, we'll start to uh wrap up in a second so i've just noticed the time so i just want to thank you again for for agreeing to uh be on this podcast today um sure. so you'll actually be here in australia on the 14th and 15th of october and that's you'll, right we'll be in sydney on the uh Fourteenth, and you'll be in Melbourne on the fifteenth with the Hub Productions. But you'll be here along with Kate Mulgrew as well.
0: That's right. And... Kate and I are very, very good friends, and we're delighted that we'll be uh, that we will be traveling together uh, in Australia and then appearing in New Zealand as well. Um, and uh, she adores my wife. Uh, we both adore her. Uh, So it's uh, it's I'm really looking forward to it as a a, it's certainly just a wonderful experience to be in. I've been to Australia. I want to say maybe four times, but not not for a number of years. So really excited to be back. It's quite quite rare see you
1: guys down here. mm -hmm,
0: And I promise that even if we are still in strike, anyone listening here, if you come to see us. That even if we are still on strike and cannot speak specifically about the franchise that we all we all know we're there for, um, we will still be incredibly entertaining and we will talk about all, all sorts of interesting things. We just had a giant convention in Las Vegas where uh, we had to talk about other things that we normally talk about. And I really believe that the fans loved it and found it just unique and different, especially if they've been to more than one convention to hear instead of going to the go-to stories of particular episodes or, or stories about one topic, we could talk about anything. Mm. And, uh, and, and it really, you know, just as we have today about a career and life and what makes you make certain choices in life, and certainly, uh, Kate has a very rich, very rich theater career, and it's is uh, very interesting uh, for her to talk about this too, and how we, and how we all came to be um, what we came to be. So I, I do think that, uh, and if we're not on strike, then we will be clicking our heels and talking about everything because there's the, the important thing for people to realize. Um, about why, why actors go on strike is that studios don't always do the same thing, the right thing, the right thing of their own volition. As a quick story, um, in the franchise that we're not mentioning today, um, there was a, a an actor who played a doctor on that show, uh, whose nickname was Bones, <laughs> the only one of the regular cast members who would not participate in the class action suit against the studio to get their fair share of merchandising after 27 years of calendars, lunchboxes, T-shirts, everything with the faces of those characters on them. Not a penny had been paid. And finally in this class action suit, um, the, uh, you know, uh, Shatner and Nimoy got paid. The other four actors got a, a reduced amount of money, but, um, but uh, um, Walter Koenig, Michelle Nichols, um, and uh, Jimmy Dewan, and George Takei, they all got paid. But I remember DeForest Kelly didn't feel it was gentlemanly to sue the studio. And he wanted to treat them in a gentlemanly manner, because that was his way. And the studio thanked him by paying him nothing. Well, um... Nothing. They did not pay him. So sometimes you have to encourage those big companies to do the right thing and share the wealth because they will not do it of their own volition. Now, that was merchandising. That's different from residuals and other issues. But it's an example example of how sometimes you have to apply pressure to make things fair. Does that make sense? That makes perfect
1: that makes sense. sense. And
0: just, just being a gentleman is not enough. Mm. <laughs> so, so there oh. you go.
1: I only hope for positive results for both the writers and actors on strike. Hopefully it ends soon. Um, I hope so too. um, Just quickly, what your friendship with Kate, did that blossom on the show working together or did you already know each other beforehand?
0: Um, No, I certainly knew uh, her work and career. But she'd been so successful at the point she was cast on. We had never met until that first day. She stepped onto the stage, and Kate is really a unique personality, but a natural leader. That's just what she is. She is like, you know, at a dinner party, she can converse with anyone. She could talk to a tree stump. She can, she can just. She is a. Tremendous conversationalist, a tremendous hostess, but mostly just a great leader. And, uh, you know, our show was in jeopardy, the show we're not mentioning, because our first captain had parted company with the producers. And then we were all concerned that it might fall apart or they might change. If they changed the sex of the lead role, would they have to change the sex of some of the other already cast characters? Uh, in any case, Kate. The, from the moment she stepped on stage, we were all in good hands. She said, "You know, memorizes uh, more efficiently and fluently than any actor I've ever worked with. I don't know how, all day long, twelve new pages, perfect." Um, but mostly, uh, she's a great actress, and her work is great. That's you know, all the other things are just discipline things, right? Yeah. Um, good spirits, hardworking, memorizing—that's all technical stuff. But she has a a a depth of uh, soul that informs her work and makes her a, a, just a just a uh, a great great artist. And uh, for whatever reason, she loved playing scenes with me. We had really good talks. All the time and we just really enjoyed each other's company so we have stayed very close uh, in the intervening years and i'm close with you know with others in my cast but kate you know um uh you know just some people you can you can sit down with and just pick up a a a deep conversation that you you know last had a year or two ago and it and it just you can get right into it again because of that long history and trust so we did become very good friends on the show, but we become better friends since the show ended, you know. Yep.
1: Um, now, in terms of uh causes you'd like to get out there, or mm-hmm. the Planetary Society, um, you're a member of the Planetary Society, so uh,
0: yes, what's the planetary, um, I will mention to your fans the Planetary Society is the world's. Biggest, most influential space advocacy organization. What does that mean? Well, in 1980, uh, Carl Sagan, who most of your audience will have heard of, I think, uh, felt that the American, actually the international interest, but specifically in America, the interest in space exploration after the great march to the moon in the 60s and the last moon landing uh, uh, in 1974 that by 1980, the public engagement was waning and he wanted to form a society of people who were really into it and really felt strongly about America's future and humanity's future in space. So it was an inter- it's always been an international organization. We have members, members from, I don't know, I can't even tell you how many countries around the world. Uh, I'm afraid to say just well over 40 because it's many more than that. Um, We are presently run by Bill Nye, the science guy. And you can, first of all, learn more about what we're doing in space right now from our website uh, and our links and our great bloggers than you can learn uh, from almost any other source. We are constantly quoted our bloggers in major periodicals like the New York Times. So it's a resource for you about what's happening We have uh, lots and lots of videos about cool things, many of them with me, many of them with Bill Nye. uh, Not being a scientist myself, my videos are really designed for lay people to understand uh, something, uh, a specific topic or a specific mission that I've done a a piece on that was called the Planetary Post. I did many of those. But... Now I'm on the executive board. When I first joined, I was on the advisory council. I spearheaded some educational challenges for young people. Now uh, I'm on the board uh, itself, so I have more duties. But my primary duty is really to bring their message to the science fiction fan community that if you love space and you want to be part of a community of people like you all around the world, then you've got to join the Planetary Society. Hmm. So visit us at www.planetary.org. And uh, I I bring their message, as I said, to the the science fiction fan community. If you love science fiction, you really love science, too. And if you don't know that, you'll find out just by visiting our website. Um, And we have really cool people on our board, like uh, Dr. Heidi Hamel, who is... uh, is uh, on the James Webb Space Telescope program. She helps run the consortium of all of the uh, space telescopes uh, in you know that uh, that that are in use right now. Um, and of course, Bill Nye and many other really amazing people that are on our board. I am the least credentialed person around the table when we go to have to. Um, you know, to advocate for increased uh, budgeting for NASA. And we go meet with congresspeople and senators. As I have met in the room, I'm there with real scientists. You know, I'm the I'm there. Uh, uh, I, I know the bullet points and I can remind them of something. But the, the scientists do the talking because the, we have people on our board that are that are involved, including our president, Dr. Bethany Elman. They're involved with missions that are happening right now, Dr. Jim Bell on our board, you know, designed the, the pan cam on the um, um, on the. Uh, um, perseverance rover, I get my names wrong, all of my, you know, uh, curiosity um, and uh, the perseverance of the sojourner of the first one, I have to always run through my head and get to the right rover. Um, but uh, and Dr. Brittany. Schmidt is the foremost authority on icy oceans and how to explore beneath them. Spends four months of her year at Antarctica, is working on the underwater rovers that will, when we send them to the icy moon of Jupiter, Europa, that will go down and look under the ice sheet for examples of life uh, under their frozen ocean world. So all of our, you know, the people on our board are, many of them are, are in the world doing it, doing the exploration right now. And they deeply understand its importance and how we as citizens need to support increased funding.
1: Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, again, you'll be here in um, Australia next month. And I have to quickly mention that the 15th of October, when you're here in Melbourne, that's actually my birthday. Mm -hmm. So great day.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, happy birthday. Now you should come see there. We can talk about, you know, um, uh, we could talk about hats, all right? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> we we have uh, Todd Stashwick on. Um, he'll be joining you here in Australia in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, he's a great um, guy.
0: We we uh we got to work together on. What a talented yeah. guy! And we, I I thought his performance on just extraordinary. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to say yeah. that. We'll bleep, it, right. out. We'll bleep say... it out. We'll bleep that out. We'll that out. Okay. Um, do
1: you have? Would you like to leave a question for
0: for Todd? Oh, is he coming on next?
1: Yeah, he'll be on
0: in a couple. I mean, uh, you said he. Ha- oh, oh he had okay. In a weeks, um. Yeah. Uh. Tell him. Uh. Um. Let's see. Uh. Oh yeah. My question for Todd is, what? Um. When we. Uh. When are you gonna buy me a, a, a drink in <laughs> uh in Sydney? That's sure. It. All right absolutely as soon i'd like it to be within the first five minutes of, of seeing me all right and then i'll buy him one in, in melbourne absolutely. on your birthday okay perfect <laughs> bob, bob thank you very much for your time you've
1: been very generous thank you thank you so much sure. I, my pleasure I hope we asked the questions that you ordinarily wouldn't get asked
0: no no uh, yeah well that with the imposition your interview and the theme of your show turned out to be a good one uh for uh the particular situation we're in now we did talk more about life than, you know, actual uh, individual film and TV credits, which we couldn't talk about. So, yes, it was very interesting. I thank the two of you for uh, obeying these uh, restrictions and support, thereby supporting me and my fellow uh, members of Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, and also uh, the WGA, our, you know, our uh, sister union in the strike um in in uh in getting a, a a fair deal and a fair share
1: absolutely well enjoy the rest of your day thank you so thank much you. for being here thank you
0: all right thanks guys I'll, i hope i see you come to our event i'll see I you will. on your birthday all right i okay. will
1: absolutely all right thank you bye, bye.